Do you know about Acker Wines? It's America's oldest wine shop and the world's largest fine wine auction house. Their weekly web auction is all the rage right now with thousands of new bottles available every week with all types of great stuff ready for drinking. With prices starting at $20, that's right, 20 bucks, to hundreds of selections for less than $100 every month, there are tons to choose from if you're looking for fun, new, or aged bottles to try. Each week brings a new assortment of the world's finest and rarest wines, often in trium size quantities. Also, there's no reason not to be buying at auction, especially when the finds are this good. In addition, the retail store is stocked with thousands of items to choose from, including lots of cutting-edge stuff. Go to ackerwines.com to get in on the action and take your cellar and drinking habits to the next level. That's ackerwines, A-C-K-E-R, wines.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is author and chief wine critic of the New York Times, Eric Asimov. He is also a James Beard Award winner of, uh, was it, uh, at large? Was it, uh, People who to know, it, it, it's uh, I guess it's uh, a, a membership in their who's who. So okay. it's not for uh, it's not an award for a particular article or something. It's I guess it's it shows I'm getting old and I've got some kind of lifetime achievement. Uh, well, it shows it's like they were like you're too dope not to be recognized. Um, <laughs> so Eric is the author of How to Love Wine, a memoir and a manifesto. It's published by William Morrow as well as Wine with Food, Pairing Notes and Recipes from the New York Times, written with recipes by Florence Fabricant and published by Rizzoli. His weekly column appears in the food section of the Times. A collection of his columns is included in the New York Times book of wine, published by Sterling Epicure. Welcome, Eric. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I hate to say... You know, a, a short paragraph sums up a life, but that's good. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome. Thank you for being here. And uh, tell tell us about the wine. Tell me about the wine we're drinking tonight. Um, well, this is one of the stranger wines I have at home. And I have to say, I've never actually had this vintage. But, um, you know, I, I recently wrote a column on um, – noble so-called noble grapes and how i think this uh, hierarchy of mm -hmm. grapes is a, is a bad thing because it it privileges uh, uh wines made from grapes that are familiar or been um grown in the area where the the gatekeepers live um and it uh it suggests that there are limits on what you can do with other less familiar grapes and i think that you know, we've had um, ample evidence that you can make 
great wine from any number of of grapes and you don't have to put you know create a caste system around you know the same six french grapes plus <laughs> one german grape um a lot of it depends on on the attitude of of the grower and and you know where do you plant these mm -hmm, what how much mm -hmm. love do you give them how seriously do you take it so um this comes from uh, Germany, the Pfalz region, uh, the northern part, which is kind of the the anonymous part of, of, of the Pfalz. Mm -hmm. And I've never even said the name of this grape um, out loud before, so forgive me, it's okay. German as, speakers, as, if as, I'm as mispronouncing tell, it. I it's, mess shit up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, Portugieser grape. Okay. And this um, historically was just used to make kind of, uh, you know, bad, sweet red wine that sold for, you know, nothing. And so, in I mean, in the U.S., nobody's heard of it. And in Europe, those who have heard of it despise it because they've just seen what kind of bad wine it makes. But this guy, um, Andreas Durst, who basically, you know, he's really a photographer who happens to have a, a couple of acres of grapes and he's drawn to the the others, you know, the things that, that people uh, say can't be any good. So he plays around with them right, and he right. makes a little of, of this. And I think it's just a really kind of – it's a very mild grape. It's, I mean it's, it's not particularly high acid mm -hmm. and, and I love high acid wine. So yep. it's a little unusual for me. But it's it's refreshing and it's got this kind of minerally quality that I like very much. Yeah, and you know, it's like <clears throat> because as you first referenced, like I'm looking for a reference point, and it kind of reminds me somewhere some type of Cru Beaujolais. I'm getting a little funkiness, a little earthiness, some berries. That's and because yeah. it's so foreign, I mean, I, I have, my mind is going somewhere, and I, that's what I'm getting from it. Just like it, like you could probably chill this. It's uh, you know, it's not as crunchy. It has the acid of some of that, you know, but. You could imagine it with a little bit more acid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, this, uh, it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, it's kind of a, a natural wine in the sense that you, you look at it and it's not, it's not filtered. It's not pristine or bright. It's yeah. not, it's not, um, I don't know. I imagine he uses a little uh, SO2, but I don't even know that. Um, Eric brought the mystery wine. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and we're still mystified by exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's actually it's, – it's really delicious. I mean you can, yeah. uh, you can drink this as a you know, vin de soif or you, can, or you can even ponder it a little bit because it does have the, this um, interesting mineral quality. Very nice. Well, thank you for – you know, this is a – you know – most people, we've had all I guess have brought great wines. This is, it's going to be hard to outfunk this one. This one is definitely <laughs> funky. It's unique. Well, it's not funky in the no, sense no, that not, there's not, not bad, you know, know, it's not mousy or right, barnyardy, right, 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 but right. it's not funky like oh this like you know Bordeaux like where sometimes it's it funky like in a good shit. sense. Yeah, it's funky like take me to Funky Town, like, you know, like <laughs> like Parliament Funkadelic funky. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, <laughs> so well, again, so glad to have you. But and we've already started geeking out on wine. But before we get into that even deeper, um, you know, I read you're from Long Island, from Bethpage, and that you I was born there. I never Go. actually lived there. Wow, okay, 
Yeah. Fucking Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, I've never read my Wikipedia entry. <laughs> I, I do know that it was uh, originally put in there by my then 10-year-old son. Oh, my God. So who the hell knows what it says? That's awesome. Well, for, for what it's worth, you know, I've gone to pages and they're like they, – they, there was no – Issues of veracity on the page. Yeah. I mean, it seemed pretty, you know, it wasn't like this page is missing information. So he did a good job. He at least got you off to a good start. Um, but um, so you're born in Bethpage, but writing it runs deep in your family. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. My my uncle was Isaac Asimov, who's, um, you know, known for his science fiction and his science writing uh, and a lot of other stuff. Uh, sometimes... You know, people have come up to me and said, "Oh, your your uncle, he's the one who wrote that that book about jokes." And I'm like, "Yeah, he did do that." <laughs> but, you know, everybody else knows him as the science fiction author. Oh, that's that's <laughs> hilarious. That's so cool. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, you know, it makes sense, you know, but it, you don't, you know, I read your I read your article. You know, I don't. I read your articles. I don't know you. So my now, father was a writer too. Right, I saw that. Yeah, I mean, Newsday. He, right? he was. Uh, he worked for Newsday for forty years. He started as a reporter there and eventually became a uh, an executive. My sister's a reporter sister, right? at, at the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. What What is your What is your not any longer ten year old son do for a living? Um. Well, he's my uh, younger son. He just got his PhD in musicology from uh, Cambridge in the in the UK. Glad I asked that question. Yeah, and he's <laughs> uh, you know he's he's like dealing with uh, COVID um, oh. in, in and Brexit and you know lockdowns and and trying to navigate. Uh, he's got he's doing a postdoc right now in in. Um, Brussels, and he's going to, after that, he's going to do three more years at Cambridge. Okay. So right. he's chosen an academic life. Wow. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Um, so, I mean, because of that, I mean, because of your dad and your uncle, did you find that writing came naturally or was it just, or just was you were just immersed in it? So you just perfect, began to perfect the craft at an early age and. Um, I I was drawn to it and you know maybe that just comes because you see you see the people around you and you you want to do what they do to a certain extent I mean I I actually never wanted to work for a newspaper um I I was a um uh like like my son Peter I was drawn to academics mm -hmm. but then I I kind of um decided this was in the mid 80s and uh, i remember i was in american studies i was uh, in a phd program and there were all kinds of stories about the uh, the death of the liberal arts uh, then as now yeah i was like I was you know like, they never actually die but like, but, but, but the jobs dry up and you know what what my son is doing is is courageous um, I'm, I was neither as talented as he is nor as brave. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be chasing, uh, one year jobs and trying anywhere I can get them and, and live in places I don't want to live. I have to figure out something else to do. So, um, having a family background in journalism meant that I had been absorbing 
you know, the mm-hmm. the ethos of the newsroom at the dinner table every night for mm-hmm. my my mm-hmm. whole life up mm-hmm. to that point, and I was able to get a job in in journalism. And so um, let me. I want. I was thinking about this, like, and and you know, we live in a different world. We'll talk about that more. You know, where influencers and blogs, but like. You grew up like in the the heyday of like real journalism, like that, where people yeah. the news was the newspaper. I mean, this not, is you not know, not some shit they read on the internet. Like literally. no, no, Woodward and Bernstein. You know, there yeah. was an entire generation of of investigative reporters were inspired. You know, uh, by the by this model, and and um, uh, journalism came to be seen as a respectable yeah. profession. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm not sure that it was when my father went into it. Right. But. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah, because, I mean, everything's cyclical, right? So, like, you know. Um, yeah. But, it, again, it was, you know, I probably felt, um, you know, I didn't do what, want to do what my father did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here I am. my dad worked at the post office. Obviously, I didn't want to do what he did. And I love him, and he took good care of us. <laughs> but you know, I but it's just that thing, right? Sons don't we don't you definitely don't want to do what you. I know it's does. it's funny. My um, you know, my sister and I both ended up doing that. My my sister intentionally, and me unintentionally, and and my two kids. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, Peter, my my older boy Jack is an uh, has his degree in urban planning, and he's uh, kind of. Um, stymied by by COVID here, he just yeah. was just hired by the uh, by the city department of transportation, and uh, we'll see where that that goes after the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what did you see? Now we this we could do the whole podcast on where you went to college. I'm a big, I'm I'm a um, I should have an honorary degree from Wesleyan. Oh yeah, I, I spent so much time. There. Um, I spend so much time there. There, there wouldn't even be. I wouldn't even know why. I wouldn't even be in the wine business, but for dating women who went to Wesleyan. Ah. yeah. So it's always a girl involved. Um, um, but um, yeah. So you went to Wesleyan. Yeah. Um, which I, I just, I just a gush on Wesleyan. People, it's like this little powerhouse school. Like people don't realize. How many influential people have come out there in so many fields, you know, like film, uh, you know, uh, journalism, uh, just just general writing of books. Um, Hamilton. I mean, people don't really I mean, like this is like it's a great school. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I did too. I mean, literally, I. <laughs> I spent well, so much, you will get no argument from I, me I spent, on the the I attributes spent, of Wesleyan women. Listen, I know. I spent so much time that literally people like I I like had a meal card almost. I, I, were, I were you in the neighborhood or no? I went to um yeah, I was in the neighborhood. I went to Southern Connecticut down ah, in New Haven. Okay, but I only transferred there because my girlfriend went to Wesleyan. I, I knew I couldn't get right. to Wesleyan. Um, and uh, people people like. They were like, you don't go here? Like, later at graduation, like, you don't go here? I was like, no, nah, man. <laughs> <laughs> I even wrote some articles for the newspaper because wow. my, my girlfriend was a sports writer and she didn't – I was like, I'll write it. Um, so what did you major – did you major – what did you major in at Wesleyan? I w- uh, history and American studies. Okay, okay, okay. So I, like you said, uh, we, we had a conversation before the poor and he was saying how he likes to read a lot of books and he's a, a fan of history. So that would make sense. That makes sense. And, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I always think in terms of history and, and um, both the, the critical thinking that you get from from studying history and the and the um, understanding that 
nothing is in a vacuum and it's always connected mm-hmm. to the past. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's helped me a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, what we went through the past four years, I'm sure being grounded in history kind of, <laughs> you know, and see, and, 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 and this, the thread that goes way, way back that was never addressed that people don't want to address. Like, people are like, what, what, why are people upset? Like, because cause we had a war <laughs> for control of the country and one side lost. And they never let go of it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what was your first job in journalism? Where'd you work first? Um, well, a- after um, I had graduated, I, I took some uh, time off. And, and with my girlfriend at the time, we um, – we got a URL pass, and, and I know what that. I'm, see, I'm, I'm old enough. To, I know what that is. That was like the, <laughs> that was like for two hundred bucks or whatever it was. You could go. Tra- you could go all anywhere for months. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and we did that. And uh, I came back and and was applying to graduate schools, and I got a job in. This is actually this was my introduction to journalism. I got a part time job as an editor at the Hartford Current. Okay. And, know that paper. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I was like a 22 year old kid, um, you know, going to work in my Birkenstocks and my long hair. And, and, um, but I learned some pretty, uh, I got some pretty rigorous training there. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they taught me how to, um, you know, how a story, um, ought to be, uh, constructed. And I probably got the Best piece of advice on writing there. Uh, somebody said to me, never listen to the fucking idiot sitting next to you. <laughs> <laughs> and and from that, you know, you learn. That's a gem, people. You that know, is a gem right there. You don't, you don't say like, oh, you know, um, who won that battle or whatever. Right. You, you have to look it up. Right, right. You right. got to look it up and learn it for yourself. Yeah. And, and you know, to that point, like and and – What's the catch-22, right? It's like I used to work with high school students and I'd be like, are you kidding me? Google it. Like I was like, I used to have to actually go to a library and cross-reference stuff. You know, Google it. But that being said, the veracity, so you have to check the sources. Like if, it, if it's like, you know, you, you want something that says .edu or you want a re- reputable source because people just see the first result and then they think it's the gospel, right? So I would, I would add, don't listen to that idiot on the internet that came up the number one in the search results unless you know that they're a legitimate source. So that's for all our, our influencer friends listening. Um, I shouldn't take pot shots at the influencers, but I can't help it. I don't like that term. Uh, <laughs> so um, aren't you an influencer? That's what they call me. <laughs> I know. That's what they call me. I'm like, I'm just a guy with a voice. And, and I mean with a voice, not like I have a voice. I mean like I have a nice oh, you voice. You can't help it if people listen to you. Right, right. Um, so you worked at Hartford Current and um, and I'm just going to pause right there right. because you spent some time in Connecticut. Obviously, you went to Wesleyan and Hartford. What's your pizza place in New Haven? New Haven Pizza. Are, are you, have you, and you're also a, a food writer, wine writer. What's your New Haven Pizza spot? Um, well, I like uh, Carbones and uh, Modern Modern, there it is. People don't know that's the legit. That's that's the other one. Yeah, modern <laughs> is the one that gets like everybody knows Sally and Pepe's or, or Pepe. Sorry, yeah. oh. I was thinking of Hartford. Oh. Pepe's. Yeah, yeah. Pepe's and modern. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's awesome. Um, that is so good. So I just whenever someone is a is pizza comes up and I have an opportunity, I'm gonna take a pizza, uh, pizza question, pizza jab, 
find out, probe your pizza knowledge of real good pizza. Um, all right. So I read somewhere in the research that then you you worked in Chicago. Well, uh, I, I was in Hartford yep. only long enough to get all my grad school applications in and I <laughs> went to um, – I then went to grad school at UT Austin. Oh, yeah. How was that? And uh, I loved Austin. Yeah, I could see you love. I loved so Austin. Great. I loved Austin <laughs> in 2015. I can only imagine what it been was like like in the mid 80s. I mean, it was just fantastic. I went to law school yeah. with a kid. This was in '92, and he's like, Marvin, I know, I know you you're from New York, but you got to go to Austin. You you'll love it. And and this was. That was like 93, and I didn't go to 2015, so I can only imagine in the 80s because, I mean, it's just grown so much. But even now, I still well, – it's a fun city. But it's, it's probably true that no matter when you get to Austin, somebody's going to tell you, oh, yeah, you should have been here 10 years yeah, yeah, ago yeah. when it was really great. Right, right. You know, so um, – but I yeah, I loved it there and, until I finished with grad school and I, I went off to Chicago. Okay. And got a job at the, the Sun-Times and that's – that's where I was going to start figuring out what to do with my life. And um, I – You're way ahead of me. I think I'm, I'm figuring it out on this podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I was working there and three weeks after I was hired, um, Rupert Murdoch bought the newspaper. And there was a clause in the union contract that said if there's a change of ownership – and you leave the newspaper within a certain short amount of time, you would get some enormous severance payment. And so like an enormous percentage of the staff just left. I was going to say, I guess you guys – and we're not talking if you like pina coladas, Rupert Murdoch. We're talking uh, Fox News. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. this is – I mean at that time, you know, there was no Fox News. He was just primarily known in this country as as the owner of the New York Post, which – you know, had gone from this sort of staid New York newspaper to this rag. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, suddenly I was thrust into a position of, of doing jobs that I had no business doing because, you know, I was one of the few people who, you know, had no incentive to leave. Right, right. And, um, and so I got an education there, but it was really it's really hard to work for somebody like um, Murdoch that wants things to read a certain way. What 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 <laughs> what level? What grade level is is, is does does is it typically written at? Well, it's it, it's not so much um, the grade level as it is the political slant. Got it. So you know you're going to publish a a newspaper that that pushes a um, a conservative point of view, right? Got it. Got it. And yeah, and then I think – and that's – I mean I don't know. I'm not – but that's kind of almost like anti-journalism. That's not doing the work and actually evaluating. I mean it's – and and we have kind of seen where, where that road has taken us, you know? Yeah. I mean it's um, – back then, you know, you still – there were there was a consensus about m – you know what truth was or what reality was <laughs> now now that's long gone so i was there i ended up being there less than a year because as, i love chicago but i just couldn't um take working at that newspaper for so long and so i, I applied for a job at the times because it's my hometown newspaper and i was kind of surprised but they hired me 
That's so funny. And what, what, what year was that? That was 1984. Okay. Which, so, I mean, look at, look at all the connections. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, you're surprised at how you look at your dad's background, look at your uncle's background. But then my mind goes to, and then it was 1984, George Orwell and your uncle was into science fiction. <laughs> it, was, it was like, it was ordained, man. <laughs> you know, it had to be. And so when you first started at the Times, what was your first beat? Um, well, I was hired as an editor. So okay. I was an editor in national news. And um, my, my passion, though, was food and wine, food and beverages, mm -hmm. I'll say. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the first jobs um, that I had there was I, I was in charge of the late night Okay. Um, report, which meant I would come in at 7.30 at night and hang out until like 11, and then everybody else would go home, and then I would be in charge just in case something happened in national news, and, and my job was to get that into the paper, and, you know, maybe maybe there would be breaking news that would have required uh, updating through the course of the evening, and, and then at three in the morning, I'd go home. Okay. Okay. So effectively, that meant, um, you know, three nights a week, I'd not have, I would have not much to do. And then two nights, there would be mad activity. <laughs> um, and I thought, okay, well, what, you know, maybe I can, because I wanted to, I, I wanted to write, I didn't want to be an editor. Mm -hmm. What can I do? And then I realized that since I was on staff, I could pitch stories to the food section without, you know, being laughed at. And I started um, sending over story ideas, and I'd, I'd report um, during the day and uh, write it, you know, from midnight till three if I had nothing else to do. What was the um, <clears throat> What was the first story that they uh, they they liked your pitch and they printed? Um, Remember? Well, yeah. At that at that time, um, um, I think it, it, the first story I did was um, why. Why is it that uh, everybody says draft beer is better than bottled or canned, but it's so often bad when you have it in a bar? <laughs> I mean, this this was just the beginning of the beer of the uh, craft beer revolution. Yeah, because Sam which, Adams was it was well, was it hadn't. Of... Sam Adams hadn't shown up in New York right, yet. Right. It, it was really a West Coast thing. Oh, like the West Coast IPAs or stuff, or it, just, it, just just well, it wasn't even before IPA. Wow. I mean, this was like Sierra Nevada okay, was yeah, just happening, right, right, right. and and Anchor yes. Steam, and you know all these things. Oh, and, I, and what I I have a friend who has a brewery. In Jersey, and he he was on a podcast. And wasn't it like hard to get Anchor Steam in Sierra Nevada? Like it was like like it was like bootlegging. Like it was it yeah, wasn't you, could, you couldn't here. really get it. And there were just at that time a couple of like a um, you know a brew pub would was opening in New York, and then there was another brand New Amsterdam that New was Amsterdam. just showing up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, okay, we have a wine writer. Um, I can't really pitch wine story, but nobody's writing about beer, so maybe <laughs> I could do some beer stories. And I, you know, I did a few beer stories. I did some other things that interested me personally, like, you know, uh, that was also a time where um, you had uh, a new, uh, kind of a new sort of ice cream parlor where they would break up little candy bars oh, and yeah. put them in the in the ice cream, and you order and, and like, what the hell is a Heath bar? 
nobody knows what that is. So I did a story on the Heath Bar and, you know, where, wherever I could find a, a space, I, I made it for myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love yeah. that. That's, 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 that's so, that is so funny. It's so true though. But like, I, I love that how you just like, I want to write. So I I can't write about wine right now. So I'll write about beer. And, and, and yeah, like, uh, like I said, uh, what are those things called? And that's very—it's so common now where they have, even have like a glass where they chop up and do your ice cream. Was it Cold Stone Creamery? Right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Like, but like, you were there at the beginning of that. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, this was the this was the '80s, and you know, the the country was going through this food revolution, and and it was just the beginning of of interest in wine, and you know, back then. I mean, we, you know, we've turned sommeliers into superstars and, you know, back then you might have a handful who might work in a fancy French restaurant, right. but that was it. Right. I had a guest on and he was saying like, you know, even back in, you know, when he was in school, I mean, like in the late nineties, it was, there was like four real Psalms and they were like all French <laughs> like, it wasn't, it wasn't like, By the late 90s, I think it had yeah. expanded yeah. a little bit. Um, so I started, you know, I was doing these food-related stories. And then eventually I, I moved over to the food section full time. That was um, 88, 89. And then in in ninety two, I started uh, reviewing restaurants. Right. And that was um, – you, you kind of – is it fair to say you invented like the, you know, under 25 type like? Well, you know, there were other other uh, publications doing that. Okay. And um, because other publications were doing it, um, I had been having this running argument for a while that the Times needed to be paying more attention to inexpensive restaurants, places and, you know, outside of Manhattan um, – and you know, for a long time, there was that was there was resistance. You know, we we have a restaurant critic. We we don't want to dilute the critical voice of the New York Times and <laughs> blah 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 blah. Yeah, but um, yeah. you know, that is, is uh, at that time there was a lot of competition in newspapers and other. There was a um, you probably don't remember New York Newsday. I know, I remember the name. Started yep. in the late '80s, mm -hmm. uh, the Long Island paper where my father right. worked. Mm -hmm. uh, started in New York edition that was considered um, competition. Okay. They had a cheap restaurant reviewer, and so did the the Daily News, and so did um, the Voice, and you know Robert Sietzema, uh, who now writes for Eater mm -hmm. New York, had this little uh, newsletter down the hatch. Where he would mail it out to people, and you know all the 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 great diners, or where do you go for West African food, or whatever. And so I find I've been uh, uh, pushing this idea, and then the the Times finally said, "Well, okay, you do it." And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome." And so, like, what were some of your early discoveries? Like, so, like, I to this day I don't spend enough time in the outer boroughs, but I mean, like. Like you, like Queens is just amazing. Like the different ethnicities. Like, like, was there something? What was like your um, article I, that, like, I want to say catapulted, but the, like really people were like, wow, this is interesting. I, you know, 
You know, I just wanted to um, set myself apart at first. The first thing I did was on a little place called uh, Green Avenue Grill in Fort Greene. Oh, and that's when Fort Greene was Fort Greene. That's that's, That's not not gentrified. We're talking talking Spike Lee Fort Greene. We're not talking. Yeah, that was do the right thing (laughs) era. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And um, I just wanted to show that, okay, like now we're going to pay attention Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, different areas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then like a little Burmese restaurant somewhere and and so um you know i uh i think the 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 first thing i did early on that i thought was really cool was um writing about the um the red hook soccer fields there were uh in in red hook brooklyn uh every weekend um all of these uh central and south american people would gather and and play play soccer mm-hmm. And uh, all of these uh, food carts and and food trucks would come out there and, uh, you know, you would have uh, Venezuelan food or Colombian food and Mexican and all kinds of stuff. And it was just so great and nobody would know about it unless you were among the the players or their families Mm -hmm. and friends. So, um, you know, I I learned that really what – Writing about restaurants in that way was really like a a amazing course in the demographics and immigration patterns of New York City. Mm. Um, you saw uh, uh, the waves of people coming in, mm-hmm. the different parts of the city where they would settle. Mm-hmm. Um, the restaurants that they would open up that were not intended for some, you know, mm-hmm. New York Times guy from Manhattan, but were just really for for their, the immigrants to give them a, a taste of the foods that they Grew they missed, yep. mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know it was really the same thing as. Um, you know, a hundred years before, some you know little Ita- red check tablecloth Italian restaurant um and um i just i found it so fascinating and you know i did that from from 92 to 2004 and i really i i knew the city so well then now i don't know it at all wow 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 yeah i mean it i really like how you tied it. it makes so much sense and um and that's pretty that's common like i live in jersey and like you go to the soccer fields on Sunday, and it's 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 all it's all the immigrants from from Latin or South America, Central South America. Um, you know, the Haitians will have a team. You know, and 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 it's just all day, and it's this big thing. Same thing when I lived when I lived in New Haven, and um, but to the way you traced it to, you know, like how they 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 weren't trying to get any Michelin stars or anything. It was just, it was good home cooking, right? And this is just good food and good flavors that, you know, that, that you got to experience, you got to share with people. I think that's, that's pretty, that's pretty pro- profound that, that you were doing that and, and kind of um really that whole melting pot in New York city. People were, people were probably living in bubbles and we still live in bubbles, but the fact that people decided to go out and experiment and try new foods based on what you wrote, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, at least I think it is. You know, I think, um, the mayor, uh, David Dinkins, uh, had a phrase, gorgeous mosaic mm. that I think really 
um, represented the city. You know, you had all of these ethnicities that, um, you know, they coexisted and were together and, and uh, you know, people were very fluid, but they didn't – people didn't lose their their character or their their pride or their culture. Yeah. And so you wrapped that up. You said was it 02 or 04? 04. 04. Okay. All right. So that's a good time. We're going to pause. Uh, we have to take a quick break. And then we come back. We're going to talk about how you went from just uh, that kind of food, 2,500, and, and then got into wine. All right? So let's we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back, everybody. Fans of the show know that there would be no Black Wine Guy experience without Acker Wines. America's oldest wine shop is now the world's destination for fine and rare wine. That's why I want you to go over to their website and check them out. Whether you're seeking the world's finest and rarest bottles or just something for everyday drinking, Acker Wines is the place to go to expand your palate and enhance your personal wine experience. Go to ackerwines.com. That's A-C-K-E-R wines.com. All right, we're back. So how how did you transition into wine? Like earlier you said, you know, that you, you, you had to pitch beer stories because they had a wine writer. <laughs> well, um, I, I was always fascinated with wine. And when, when I came to the food section in 88 or 80, 89, um, you know, we had a, a wine columnist, Frank Pryle, who uh, a lot of people don't remember now, but he was – you know, one of the first weekly on-staff wine columnists for uh, an American newspaper. He started like in 72 or, or something like that. And, you know, Frank was a – he was a super smart, cultured guy. He spoke French, but he affected, you know, the kind of rough-and-tumble foreign correspondent, you know, a guy who – who liked to traipse through the Khyber Pass and, <laughs> you know, knock back a few. And, um, you know, he acted as if writing about wine was sort of like, you know, to to use a word that that somebody might have used in the 80s, effeminate, mm. you know. Um, and he professed, you know, to not really be into it and he'd rather be you know, covering crime or the UN or, or something like that. So I, you know, after hanging out with him, I said, look, Frank, I, I've got a, a great idea. Let me trail you for six months or so. You can uh, introduce me to people. You can teach me things. Um, and then I'll take over wine and you can you can do whatever you want. And he didn't talk to me after that for two months. <laughs> and I realized actually that he loved oh, that man. job oh. and you know it was all a front <laughs> so um okay so he you know he he occupied the chair and right. and i did other things but i i uh, always loved wine and in 1999 um my editor asked me if i wanted to write a little like a uh, tasting column every uh, every week. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Cause Frank doesn't want to make recommendations. He just he wants to do whatever he wants to do. Sure. And so I did that for, um, the next few years until, um, right around the time of nine 11, mm. um, which was around the time that, um, 
uh, Dottie and John at the Wall Street Journal yep. were getting very popular, mm-hmm. and um, our uh, publisher, uh, Arthur Salzberger, said, well, you know, they've got this Dow Jones wine report. Why can't we have the New York Times wine panel? And um, Frank didn't want that, and I didn't really want that either, but but we had to have it. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we started that, and, and he was uh, writing it, and uh, he had some illness, so I, I took over writing it, and, and he eventually retired in 04, and then I became the, the wine critic. Okay, okay. Um, and then, so you all, you said you, you always loved wine. Like, when when did you fall in love with wine? Like, was it just like a, a bottle of Beaujolais when uh, shared on a U-Rail train? Or was it like, <laughs> was it like uh, you know, uh, some type of crazy uh, Swiss uh, native varietal, you know, with, with uh, you know. Well, I'm going to back up uh, even farther. I was um, 14 years old and uh, my parents took me to France for the, their first trip and my first trip. And that's Maybe, a good age because you full, full on remember No, it. it was a terrible age oh. because it was the summer and I had my first girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, suddenly, yeah. you know, you go from this sort of – you know, exciting, quasi-adult, you know, life full of, of hormones flying everywhere. And then, like, your parents drag you along to, on I, their I trip. It. And so, you know, we're kidding. It's always about a girl or boy. <laughs> and, uh, like, so I love, he's like, ah, it's 14. Like, so, I'm like, you can remember it. He's like, no, nah, man. <laughs> Becky Sue was at home. Man. I was, so, <laughs> I mean, I was, like, the proverbial sullen teenager and my mother got really sick of me and and my father was going to lunch with some friends uh newspaper friends of his who worked at the international herald tribune and she said take him with you um so i went to lunch at at a bistro in paris and this was like a formative experience for mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. I had, you know, this was the 70s and and American food was still like instant coffee and TV dinners. Tang. And, you know. Um, Not even orange juice. Tang. And here, one? you know, I'll never forget this. The, the lunch, you know, entrecote. <laughs> and, and haricot vert and, and dauphinoise. And, you know, of course, they were drinking some bottle – I don't know what it was, but they gave me a little bit. And right, because that's what's very common. That's still yeah. common in Europe, and just, you're having wine at lunch. Yeah. And so, um, and my, you know, my parents were not really wine drinkers. It might there might be on a, a, a seder or, or you know Thanksgiving, some yeah. you know holiday, but there was not a table, a bottle on the table every night. Um, and I thought. Oh my God! I have to have this experience all, all the time. This is <laughs> this food is so good, and I just I kind of put together the food and the wine and the conviviality, and it all became sort of an ideal for me. And I became you know one of those like an annoying kid who you couldn't walk down a rest uh, a, a street in New York because I'd have to stop and look at every menu that was posted <laughs> on 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 the restaurant uh door and um you know eventually uh I got into wine as as well because it was just so good with with food, and mm-hmm. this is not a uh you know, a a uh, 
a path towards uh, a connoisseurship or anything. It was just like, uh, you know, we're students, we're, we live, I always, after my first year, I always lived in a house and we, you know, we cooked for ourselves and we had a bottle of wine and it might have been um, uh, Matus Rosé or some other. Hey, well, Matus Rosé has been on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been just, uh, it was more often just some cheap um, French wine that came in, you know, 1500, we didn't call them magnums then. It was just like big bottles because <laughs> they were cheaper. You know, Minervois wine or something. Yeah, those 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 uh, those appellations that are still underrepresented. You know, in the whole, like we you talked about, which you guys, we, when we released the before the pour about the noble grapes, but like, yeah, I mean, there's so many grapes out there that, you know, like, I mean, Cote de Rhone. I mean, how cheap was Cote de Rhone until recently? I mean, Cote de Rhone was like dirt cheap. I mean, it's still I not mean, it's still not that bad. Beaujolais. Like, yeah. I mean, I just wrote a column about you know Beaujolais that. You know, it's like, you know, 40 bucks a bottle and, and people are freaking out. But, you know, that's what there's a little tariff add on there. Yeah, but, there's, there's that. And, and that's um, what I mean. It's, it's been a long time, people. I mean, so like things go up, but it's just but it, it's I think those are still some of the best values, right? Like a, a $40 crew Beaujolais, man, like you're, you're probably going to get a better hit than a $300 Burgundy that you don't know if you can even afford a $300 Burgundy. You know what I mean? Like you're 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 going to get a more. Even though those wines are so handcrafted, it's probably going to be more consistent and more. <sighs> well, I'm I'm one of those people who says that the inconsistency of Burgundy is way exaggerated. Okay. My argument is that um, all wines are inconsistent. Every genre of wine has its good producers and bad producers. You make a very good point. And um, you know, it's it's just kind of a, a cliche about Burgundy, and maybe it was more true. 25 years ago, but certainly in the last 15 years or so. So I don't believe it. You And, and that's one of the things I know you, you, uh, you, a couple of weeks ago, and it wasn't too far ago, you did a, a whole, um, 20 wines under $20 or something like that. Yeah. That's a, that's a regular series yeah. that, that I do. And, um, you know, I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna preach for a moment. Preach. You know, this is the greatest time in history if you love wine. I mean, there's more different wines from different styles and in different grapes of better quality than ever in history. And, you know, it's it's really a sad thing that ordinary consumers, wine-loving consumers can't afford uh, a good Burgundy anymore. And it's getting so we can't afford um, good crew Beaujolais mm. anymore. Uh, and that's really sad. But the good, you know, on the the good side is that there's so much else out there. And um, I mean, I'm, we're lucky. I'm lucky to live in New York, which maybe is the, you know, the best place in the country, if not the world, um, to see this. Right. Know, particularly from the European side with all that's going on. Right. You know what I mean? Like it makes it way out West, but like, well, also because, you know, we're not a wine producing We're yes, we have uh wine, we make wine in the Finger Lakes know, and on Long Island, I, but you know, historically we're more a crossroads of other people's wines. Right. And that's why, you know, there's so much more diversity here than say in Paris, because, you know, you have a long cultural tradition of just drinking French wines yep, there. Yep, yep. So, what have you? Where, like, where would you 
throw throw some bargains out to people who who haven't read your, any of your articles. Like where where are you seeing some great values under twenty bucks in the world of wine? Well, right you now? know, this is where you have to um, get on your kind of explorer's uh, suit and be ready to go places that that maybe. Um, you know, you haven't heard about as being great for wine. So I have a, a column coming out tomorrow about um, Greek red wines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, 25 years ago, there were no, you know, if you wanted Greek wine, you had to go to Astoria. And what would you find there? The only thing people knew about Greek wine was don't drink Retsina. <laughs> um, then we started hearing about the white wines, Assyrtico, Moscow Filero, Rodita, all different kinds of, of Greek white wines. And they're wonderful, but nobody has t- spoken as much about the, the red wines. And the red wines are just great values uh, depending on – you know, you have to select carefully mm-hmm. and, and that's what I try to do, offer some suggestions um, but there are all, all these grace, uh, grapes that, that people don't know uh, very well and producers we don't know. And, um, and, and, and some of these wines are, are just uh, delicious and different and distinctive and, and they don't cost that much. Um, we saw that a similar thing in, in Sicily. Now those prices are, are going up a little bit as the wines get yep. discovered. Yep. But, um, you know. Oh, love Grillo. Grillo, love Grillo. Yes. Oh my God. Um, Spain, Portugal, especially my, Portugal, favorites. is outside the tariff zone, yeah, yeah. and uh, I think Portuguese wines are really coming into their their own right now. And um, you know, it's what's interesting is that um, it's not it, what creates this diversity is not just. Um, you know, so-called new world wine regions. Oh, we, you know, we bring in wine from Chile and Australia and Argentina and uh, whatever. No, it's it's places in the historic wine producing areas that for centuries have just been local wine producers. Right. Nobody, you know, nobody knew about them or they um, – or they were they if they were not ignored they were kind of d- dismissed the the Jura they make weird wines right, there right, right. Um, but now they're they're prized yeah um, different areas of Spain uh, you know Ribera Sacra yeah I find or, Spain so interesting because even at the high end like a Vega Sicilia like it's still like like compared to like first growth Bordeaux, it's still a val. I mean, like, it's just as good a wine, just lasts just as long, even better. And just because it's from Spain, I mean, collectors know, but by and by, you know, when I uh, told someone, like, I remember when I first started the business, 97, 98, I was working over at Sparrow in Hoboken and Protocolo was three ninety nine. It was a Tempranillo. <laughs> Delicious for three ninety nine. Like, if it had been from California, it would have been a $20 bottle of wine, right? You know what I mean? And I love California wine, but that's just economics, right? So I think I think Spain over delivers. Um, I really want to get more into Portuguese wines this year. Um, I had a few of them, but uh, it is exciting, I think. But people have to be willing to step outside of Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay. You have to, you know, and and um, and try like it's just it's 
what I love about wine, and I, I get this from you, is like, it's just, it's never ending. I'm never going to learn it all. It's, it just keeps you going. There's always going to be something new to learn and something exciting. And you don't have to like everything, but you get to, you can experience things. And that, that's how I think you expand your palate is by trying things. Yeah, the more things you drink, the better idea you have of, of what you like, the less um, intimidating a wine list becomes because you, you're not you're not afraid of it you know you're you're become more comfortable saying yes i like that or no i don't like that you know rather than checking the score first to see if it's good right which i i'm 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 a fan of scores but not for the reasons people think i think they 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 if once you open up your palate they give they can and if you're they can be a guidepost but i think there are people there was a whole group of people who just wanted they had money they bought it because it was a high score. You know what I mean? Um, but if you're, you know, I do like reading different reviews and writers like you because then I, I triangulate and I find what I like from my palate. So I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a place for them. I, I just knowing knowing what what they when they when they really took off and you look at the dot com bubble it was like I just want a hundred point wine. You know, I can just I can I can sell wine. I, I can make a wine. It gets a hundred points and I could sell it for five hundred bucks a bottle. That, that was like a, there was there was a time and that was just like well, you were making a commercial model. judgment, right, right, right. You know, um, so another thing that you do that I I find wonderful and I'm sure lots of people is wine school. Talk a little about uh, wine school. Well, the idea of wine school was um, it came out of uh, a column I had written. I don't know before before high speed internet and social media and and so on. And he said high speed. Well, I mean, that's imp- it's important to say that. I know, because no, no, that was the term. <laughs> that was it. Was like high speed internet. You know, because yeah. you know, you used to have that modem boom, noise. Boom, boom, boom. You know, <laughs> And you, you know, if you want to look up something, it would take like five minutes. Um, and it, you know, it's just it didn't. No, it's so true. I but um, um, so I, I wrote a I wrote a column called Home Wine School. Here's how you learn about wine, because my philosophy has always been the best way to learn is to drink. That's it, and drink a lot of different kinds of wine, so you can figure out what you like and what you what you don't like. And this is almost. You know, this has to precede the reading and the class because you just have to, you know, ground yourself in in wine and the varieties and just get accustomed to to what's out there and 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 what appeals to you and what what doesn't. And um, I said, well, you know, go to find a good wine shop. Most important thing, mm-hmm. have them give you a mixed case. Drink a bunch of different wines, you know, open one with, with dinner every night, every other night, once a week, whatever works, and just take note of what you like and what you don't like. Um, and then go back and share your notes with the merchant and get another case and, and just kind of build on this. And maybe if you find you like a certain kind of wine, get a case of, of 12 different varieties of that wine, mm. 12 different producers and you know, slowly you kind of build your your uh, frame of reference up. Um, then a few years later, once we were, we were in the age of, of high-speed internet, <laughs> I thought, okay, well, maybe we could turn this into a, kind of an interactive um, column where uh, instead of like suggesting a case that people should buy, I suggest a different – three. 
varieties of a, a particular genre of wine every month. And people go out and mm-hmm. get that wine and, and drink it. And then we sort of virtually reassemble and talk about it. And um, and this is this has basically been the idea. We've been doing that since um, 2014 once a month. We look at a, a different kind of wine or, or a grape or um, you know some other – concept mm-hmm. uh each month and 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 gather again and and talk about it and the you know the the idea the underlying um hope is that people um sort of grow out of the need of of scores and yeah. and tasting notes and and critics and just kind of decide for themselves what you know what wines do I like what wines do I do I not like and and just develop a, a healthier, more comfortable relationship with wine? So I remember one you did, um, and it was it was kind of well because I kind of jumped into the fray a little bit, but it was very polar. The supermarket wine you did, with oh yeah, <laughs> Apothic. It was Miomi, and what was the third one? It was Apothic. Miomi. The prisoner. The prisoner. Right. So um, yeah, like. <laughs> let's let's kind of talk about supermarket wines for a second because that 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 one was hot like yes. on the Times website and on social media like on on Instagram that that was like hot like people were some people were mad that you were even you mentioned those brands yes like what, what like what was that experience well because that, um, that was a hot the one. reason I did that is because one of the um, reactions I get every month and pretty much with not just wine school every column I write is saying well we can't find those wine you right, know? right why can't we find them why can't you write about wines that everybody can find right. and you know I've tried explaining that um, you know we live in we don't live in in the United States, as far as wine distribution goes, we live in 50 different countries where yeah. every every state has their own rules, their own um, distributors, uh, and it's virtually impossible, um, short of picking out mass-produced wines that are right. you know available in in the equivalent of supermarkets. Yep. Um, and so I finally said, okay, if Okay, I will pick out wines that everybody can find. Here they are. Yep. You know, drink that <laughs> exactly. motherfucker. Exactly right. You want some shit you can find? Here you go. But that I mean that's that sounds mean and and I didn't want it I don't I it wasn't, you know, passive aggressive really no, because I, I also wanted to say, okay, what's the difference between wines that are are consci- you know, carefully conscientiously made by people who are um you know, perhaps land, stewards of the land, or, or maybe their family's been yep. been doing this for for two hundred years, yep. or um, you know, they're they uh, they're very idealistic in what they do, and you know, how does that? Com- those are the usual wines we try to drink, and here we have uh, processed wines. Mm-hmm. This is a a a product. That is created to meet a preconceived flavor profile based on um, on focus groups and popular po- on studies and and um, you know it's a, it's essentially like a processed food. Yeah, it's like Coca Cola. It's a formula. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Fritos. Yeah, it's yeah. So um, and and you know you put Although it on Fritos the Fritos sh- are no, Fritos are pretty simple like corn uh, and salt. Uh, right. You're, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's like breakfast cereal. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> 
but yeah, no. To your point, like I mean, and in in what's interesting is. With the prisoner wasn't wasn't that way at first. I mean, that was, it was, right. He bought leftover grapes. Yes, was, you know, and and he created a blend. Yeah, like it wasn't. And then they were like, it evolved to that. It evolved to that. To uh, listen, that guy knows how to create a brand and sell it. Absolutely, and just like just like the Naomi people. Um, right. <laughs> so as you said, there was an enormous reaction. On the one hand, you know, people say, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? How can you, you know, how can you recommend wines like that? Yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, there were people. Oh, Finally, I've been drinking, you know, Mayomi or, or you know, uh, Apothic Red. And, yeah. and, and I finally, I feel seen. Right. I'm recognized. Right, right. And, you know, the idea, I, I don't, I, I try not to be judgmental of people and their taste of people. If somebody likes Apothic and they're happy with it, that, I'm not saying they're, they're wrong. Right. But just as a, as a critic, I have to assess right. the wine right. from a, you know, from my aesthetic point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so, it's very interesting because people, you know, um, I'm like, well, if you like red blends, and that's another thing. I'm like red blend. They Red blends have been around since wine's been made. Yeah. Man. Did you ever have a Bordeaux? Yeah, exactly. I mean, shout, shout out to pop. <laughs> like, like, you guys like, like literally we said it before, like, as someone who studied marketing, I love marketing, but yet I hate it because it's just, it's the spin that, that can get put on things. And, and particularly in this world, like I just, the, the spin, you know, I was on a wine tasting yesterday and, you know, when, when people say, well, we don't put any residual sugar. I'm like, well, people don't put residual sugar unless they're making a dessert wine, you know, or unless it's a supermarket wine, right? So if you put it in, it's not residual. Right. Exactly. It's not <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that, you know, it's part of the recipe. Um, yeah. And that, I remember that one because I had met, I had met a wine merchant down in Florida a few weeks before and he started following me on Instagram and like I said okay I'm going to join this wine study and he like lit into me he's like why would you post that and I was like I remember something New York City wine legend Steve Green worked with him at Acker City he's like Mr. Marvin there's no accounting for taste so if someone likes those wines you know that's what they like I I don't have to drink them I'm not going to judge you per se for drinking them um but I, I liked – I really I, – I liked watching that unfold and, and that is one of the things even with my Instagram or like people are like, where did you get that wine? I'm like, well, it's mailing list only. Like, oh, damn. You know, and I, I don't – not not doing that. But I'm a guy who have wine shipped to Connecticut because I can't get it in New Jersey and go pick it up. You know what I mean? That's, right. That, I'm that guy, right? Yes. You're not going to be that vigorous. So, <laughs> so, you know, just enjoy the tasting notes. But, it, you know, it's <laughs> funny. Um, you, you realize – and I've realized it a hundred times that um, – a lot of people are interested in wine critics uh, mostly be, because they want to have their own taste validated. Correct. And Correct. you know, it's uh, I I don't I'm you know it's it's one of the weird things about um, wine and and criticism that um, you know you need this sort of. The, this uh, imprimatur, the you know, the, to 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 validate somebody's own taste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what what uh, I would say? Let me back up in my mind. Um, so we've seen a, a, a huge shift. We talked about it earlier in in journalism and um, and how news gets reported. Uh, you were a bit of an early adopter. You started a blog like in 2006, like a yes. real journalist. Tell, how, what, what prompted you to do that? 
Uh, my editor told me to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's you have to understand that um, this is an institutional blog. It's not, uh, um, okay, okay, you know, yeah. somebody uh, doing something independently. Gotcha. It was it was housed on the Times okay, uh, okay. website yeah. and you know moderated by by the Times. So. You know, it, but that also gave it kind of instant um, sway, and it was yeah. noticed by a lot of people. And um, you know, I had I had a lot of fun with that, and I did it. I guess from '06 to maybe 2012, which was sort of the the you know the apogee of blogdom. Yeah. You know, before social media. Yeah, and, and, began. and vlogs, video, you know, video right. yeah, started taking over. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's 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 so funny because <laughs> I've I've read articles about that people like you need editors like you need to get on Twitter you know to their reporters like you, right you need to get on Twitter like I yes. want to be on Twitter I want to be out investigating get on Twitter you know um so it's just interesting um that uh, that you're told that um so I mean I guess I was given a choice but well, yeah, you know yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, exactly. you can either start a blog or start looking for a job start a blog. <laughs> I don't know if it's that extreme, but that's that's the BWG humor guy. So he did not say that. Um, <laughs> so like, what's it been like um, watching the rise of the Psalm and social media? Um, well, I I think I mean I love sommeliers, and I I think that um, you know the sommeliers have done great things for wine. Uh, by being the you know very um, uh, direct links to consumers, they can be incredibly influential and uh, pass on their own discoveries and you know make um, uh, subtle or, or not so subtle recommendations and and in in many different ways um, be helpful. And I think you know. Uh, for people who who came up in the eighties and, and the nineties, you know, when you saw uh, sommeliers began as something more to be feared, you know, they were um, uh, they would make you feel the depths of your ignorance <laughs> with their with you their swine, they would, you stupid you know, fool. They, they you know they would be condescending. Right. At least this was the the stereotype. Yes, right. They would try to upsell you. Right. And no, you had to protect yourself from them at all costs. No, in in fact, they could be your best friend in in a restaurant. Um, you know, now, now that's a little bit um, separate from the the question of social media. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, because I think I mean, I think it once the movie came out and it. Just was when these new platforms came out, and younger people were taken to them. You know, initially, um, it kind of coincided. So, like I said, yeah, there was there was a thing where I was a psalm. I'm not certified. I sold floor on the on the floor of a restaurant. I sold wine on the floor of a restaurant in Santa Barbara. We I would help people with the menu. Help, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, and and to say I don't, didn't consider myself a psalm, but I was like, well, I guess that that is the technical definition. You don't need the certification for it. But um, 
So I like how you, you handle that. So social media, you come on, like you're you're on Instagram. You're you're pretty active. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, th- let me just uh, back up to the the psalm yeah. for a moment because I think that um, you know the issue of, of certification really became over overdone and exaggerated. Uh, possibly because of, of the movies and the, the influence of, of the court right. um, and, and so on. And I, I think, you know, quite apart from, from the, you know, horrendous stories of, of, uh, of the last um, Misconduct couple abuse, of years, yeah. uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's been good for wine culture. Um, you know, I think that, that – you know, sommelier is a restaurant job. Yes. People get that certification so they can leave restaurants. Right. Um, what does that mean? Um, you know, the, the idea that, that people who are interested in wine should pattern themselves after sommeliers, I think, is, is pernicious. Mm-hmm. I don't think it helps. It, the idea that people have to learn how to blind taste and and you know guess what kind not only guess what 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 kind of wine it is but what vineyard what what's the barrel and all those bullshit it it's it's worthwhile you know for professional reasons if you're in that business sure. but for ordinary consumers i i don't think it was it, it ends up creating more anxiety than it uh, alleviates. Yeah, and I would t- and and people. I mean, again, blind tasting. These are things that aren't new. You know, blind tasting has been going on. Judgment of Paris was a blind tasting, right? Like this is not a new. When I worked at Acker, we sometimes they would do the wine. Sometimes we were doing blind just for fun, not not just I mean, just for fun, just for the hell of it, you know. But like now, right? It's become a thing. It's become well. Can you taste this blind? And and um, and you know, as someone who has a degree, he doesn't use. Um, it becomes like, well, what are you seeking? Like, well, like, so are you? Are you? You? You just gonna out, go out and taste six to eight wines so you get your next certificate, or just like how I got my palate? I just taste everything, you know. I just taste, taste, taste. That's like, it's uh, what's it called? Street, street, no, street creds. The school of hard tongues, or whatever it would be called. <laughs> from, from all the tasting. Um, so you know, I, I think, like you said, it, it's it, these things can shine a light, but then what's the road we're actually going down? You know, with them and. Uh, you know, like you said, I, I tell people there's only so many sommelier jobs. There's only so many restaurants that hire sommeliers. So, you know. And uh, and who knows <laughs> what that's going to be like going forward. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And then it also it, – it, 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 I, I, I'm not knocking anyone. However, you know this. Like you can go – there's stores where somebody's been working in the same retail store – for 30 years, been going to every tasting, reads the same books, and and you're going to go in with a recommendation from someone you don't know and, and like versus – and this guy be right in front of you and know a shit ton more about wine. <laughs> and, and, and I think because, you know, like I said, as, as someone who has a degree they don't use, like, you, like, well, I got the degree. So they must know. Like there's this assumption of – there's an assumption of knowledge that not, not that may not necessarily be there. And I, you know, I just think – a good a good retailer with someone who's been there even five ten years who just loves wine is going to give and, and is going to listen to you and no agenda is just what do you like what did you like about it you know and just ask you some simple questions you know and like you said with wine school write down what you liked about it that way you can go back and, well I like this about it and literally people don't get I'm like you don't have to say leather like it it tasted really dry or it tasted like cherries or I don't like it because it was bitter and we can work from that right you know so. 
Um, so, so yeah, so social. Um, what do you see? What do you see going on there? Well, you know, um, I I like Instagram a lot. I it's just um, fun it's a, it's to fun medium. communicate yeah. um, with people. There there just seems to be less, um, you know, uh, vituperation on, than on Twitter. Oh yeah, Twitter's just. Um, <laughs> I I haven't really. Exp- I'm, you know I'm. I use the uh, the tools that I uh, that I have, but I haven't explored a lot of the other tools. I'm not on, you know, uh, TikTok You're not or TikTok and Snapshot <laughs> or, or Snapchat. Or I, I've yet I I've yet to enter a clubhouse. Yeah, I was gonna say but, you, you um, could probably have a pretty big clubhouse, man. You could get that thing up to 100k pretty easily, bro. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what's the point? Uh, <laughs> And, and 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 that's the thing. What where are you going with it? So, so this is what you do for a living. You're a wine critic. Like, but do, is there, do you ever get tired of being asked for wine suggestions? Um, almost never. You know, awesome. I mean, that's what I that's what I'm supposed to do. I, I mean, that's like, um, you know, if you're if you're a lawyer, people ask you about the law. Yeah, but I, I went to law school. Most <laughs> lawyers do not want to be lawyers anymore. They're like, oh, this shit sucks. And you know, that's another like um, meme of uh, of restaurant and wine critics. They always want to tell you how hard the job. I mean, you don't understand. You think it's just fun going to restaurants and eating and drinking, but I have to eat, you know, so much, and I have to go to like restaurants every night. Oh yeah, and, I, I you see know that. you. I mean, no. Right, right. I, I tell mean, all the time. it's the best. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, anybody, and when people complain about it, you, it's just a lie. Right. I know exactly. Oh, Either that, or they just shouldn't be doing the job. I got to taste two hundred Bordeaux's right this week. I mean, that's. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying that's easy. That's, no, people, that's really kind what, of uh, physically challenging. His palpitation is real. But I mean, given everything that. Um, you know, people have to do to make a living to complain about palate fatigue I just know. seems like, like you know, uh, no really more. ridiculous. I can't more <laughs> no more sauternes. Stop, 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 stop. I know it's truffle week. Stop. Yeah, like it, it does become kind of <laughs> no more champagne and caviar. I, I can't. I just can't. It's I can't. <laughs> um so I mean, but you I mean uh we kind of touched on this, but I want to maybe just kind of backtrack. You talked about, but like, what what are you finding most exciting about wine right now? Like, if you had to say, there's uh, what do you is it is it the diversity of wine available? Like, is it is it is it uh, more people awaking? What 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 excites you the most about wine? It's definitely the diversity. I mean, that is just um, endlessly exciting to me, and to you know to find a wine like that. I mean, th- no, there's. You're not going to find like uh, in a restaurant or in a wine shop, oh, a whole like rack of great Portuguese. No, you're not going to get <laughs> and, like five and, of them to compare. You know, <laughs> um, but it but it might be that um, somebody somewhere tastes this wine and say, hey, you know, I that's there that wine could be really good, and and maybe somebody in in um, in Germany is maybe what's you know we have a real um, uh, heritage with this grape here, and what if we really um, you know treated it well like people are doing with Aligote now? Oh my God! In Burgundy, the, the, the other white Burgundy. Oof. I mean, 
you know, so um, good. I mean, it's it's very um, easy to dismiss it and say, oh yeah, it's a great wine as long as you put some um, creme de cassis in it or mm-hmm. you know whatever old joke you want to make. Um, Domaine Arlo. I mean, I've had so many good ones. They're, they're, oh they can God. be really good. Maybe we don't really know what the um, what the limits are. Sylvaner is another yeah. grape that I I really love and and have had so many good versions of it that but it's easy it was easy to dismiss it because it's just the you know in in the hierarchy of Alsace or or Germany it was just not at the top I mean I love Riesling Riesling's great but it it shouldn't be the only wine that they make in Germany because Germany makes a lot of different wonderful wines so mm-hmm. you know just um this to me is, is fascinating and it's, it's actually one of the great things that's happened in california or, over the last um uh 15 years or so what what used to be a very diverse state in terms of of the grapes that were grown you know then became very kind of uh it went into that noble grape cabernet sauvignon and chardonnay let's just fucking say it right? yeah like, and then, like, then you know up. there's some in merlot and pinot yeah, noir and then yeah. we'll throw zinfandel in right. there but but, but there's but a pull, lot more you're pulling up zinfandel vines you're pulling up petite Syrah vines you're pulling up yes italian varietals to to plant shit and and the, the interesting thing which was going to be my next question you know um what do you see the impacts of climate change on the wine business, right? Because I think people are going to have to start changing the grapes they grow in regions because the climate is shifting. Well, it's you know the, the it's enormous. I mean, it's it's already been enormous, and um, paradoxically, a lot of the effect of climate change up till now has been beneficial. You know? Yeah, it's like in Germany, like, like they're able to make drier in Germany or, or Champagne yeah, or, yeah. or Barolo. Yeah. I mean, all of these places, you know, where they would get maybe three good vintages in a decade, yeah. um, had it really good for the, the 90s and the, and the first and, and the aughts. Yeah, the aughts. Is that how you say it? The aughts? Don't ask me. I mispronounce <laughs> shit all day, every day, but I think it is the aughts. But, you know, we're now like, you know, we've gone past the, the tipping point and, and, and now in, in Champagne, you worry about overripeness yep. and, and, and same thing in the Lange um, and, and in Germany. And I think, um, I mean, it's too soon to say, oh, we're going to have to change. You know, we can't grow Pinot Noir anymore in Burgundy. There's a lot of different uh, viticultural um, steps that can be taken mm-hmm. to try to mitigate mm-hmm. uh, the, the climate change, but but one of the the effects are, are these um, you know bizarre uh, weather events, um, you know hail and uh, uh, spring frosts and and uh, forest fires in California that are so destructive. Mount Etna is erupting as we're sitting here doing this podcast. Oh uh, man. Well, that's, you know, I can't, you can't attribute that to climate change, no, but. <laughs> no, you can't. And it just reminds us that we are subject to the earth. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's a volcano and they knew it was. It active. always amazed yeah. me that people would like <laughs> just kind of, you know, willingly put themselves, right. you know, in, in law, you know, spewing distance of a volcano <laughs> and well, we're, we're going to live here, yeah. you know. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's so true. So, I mean, you've had so many successes in the business, 
um, and, and obviously it's beyond, um, you know, you didn't start in wine, but was there ever a time when you were like, you know what, screw this, I'm done, I'm walking away, I'm going to go become a university professor or do something else? Um, no, absolutely not. Okay. I mean, I just, I, I love what I do and I'm grateful for the, the opportunity. I'm, I'm privileged to work at a place like the New York Times that, you know, is one of maybe three newspapers in the entire country that has a uh, on-staff wine critic mm. um, and uh, and also has the, the budget to, um, you know, to pay for me to, to travel and, you know, not to take uh, junkets, not to accept um, – uh, gifts, not to not to write only about not not to write about samples, mm -hmm. but um, I can buy the wine that I want to buy to to write about. Um, that's just an enormous um, uh, relief journal journalistically that you're not beholden to people um, who are uh, you know financing your career, mm -hmm. and it's not I. I I understand that that most wine writers have to be have to depend on uh, that because there there's no money in wine and there's nobody supporting them and I'm just very lucky to have one of the few jobs where I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, really cool, really cool. Um, <clears throat> and you know, I just we have a little time for that. So, like, what? And it may not be because you had some, but was there a bottle of wine? over the course of your career that just knocked your socks off and, you know, and, and you know, and it, it could be, it, was, it could be a DRC or it could just be like, I had this bottle, like you talked about, uh, in France at a bistro, like what, is there a bottle of wine that just blew you away? It's like your, it's like your death row wine. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that I've had a, um, you know, life for me, it's been a never-ending series of epiphanies, mm. you know, going – I mean, I was in grad school in, in Austin when I had uh, the first bottle that just, like, blew me away as a wine. What I was, was that? Um, that was a 1978 uh, Barbera d'Alba from uh, Giacomo Canterno. Well, Which, I mean, I can see. I mean, <laughs> know anything about, and it probably wasn't even that expensive back then. But if you know anything no, about it was, one, it was like eight dollars. Yeah. and I remember, you know, because we, I mean, again, we were just buying grad student wines, and and I was at the very first Whole Foods. There was only one at the yeah, time. Yeah, that, that, that was they weren't even in, they, in they weren't planning to be what they are today. They just, they just like we yeah. like organic food. We're a bunch of hippies. Let's start a food. And I think store. you know we were probably having like. You know, spaghetti. And yeah. I just, okay, I'll get an Italian red. And, <laughs> and I innocently bought that bottle, not knowing anything about the producer. And it was just great. Yeah. And I thought, you know, uh, again, as I did with that, that bistro meal, um, this is so much better than what I'm used to. I have to have this experience again and again. And I've, I've had that, whether, you know, with a, uh, 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 Domaine Lefleve, uh, uh, Les Pucelles, uh, Pouligny. Um, wow, that's white burgundy. Oh, you know, having had my share of great white burgundies and having like a, a coche, uh, yeah. you know, Perrier. Like, like, and it's like, oh my God. Yeah, right, that's, or, like, that's what the hype's about. <laughs> you know, or even uh, uh, Genta's um, uh, Cote Roti, 1988, <sighs> that, you know, 
I mean, that's really the Northern Roan is kind of my that's your, my jam. That's your jam. Yeah. That's your shit. I'm a Southern Roan guy, but I, I do appreciate the savoriness that they, those guys get. Like just like just, oh, it is just. But but you know when I when I was learning about wine, I didn't learn from the top down. I mean, I really learned from the bottom up. There was yeah. no you know university wine society like you might have had if you were if you came up in the UK right. or or. Um, you know, my parents didn't open a bottle of great Burgundy for me. So the first time I, I sat up, you know, and said, oh, my God, this is amazing. The first Burgundy was, a, a, you know, an Haute Cote de Nuit. Yeah. Or the, you know, the first, I do remember the first uh, Riesling, a J.J. Prume, Grocker Himmelreich. Um, but, you know, the, these were uh, kind of uh, organic um you know, ele- elevations each sure. time sure. of a of a new and different style, and and um, you know, and I, I was very much um, uh, influenced by things that I read, not not wine literature, but like if you're reading a novel, I yeah, remember I mean, reading a novel, yeah. The Winds of War, and and they're in. Um, you know, German and drinking with a, you know, some Mo- a Moselle wine, yeah, yeah, which right. is what they called it. Yeah. And okay, what's a Moselle? Right. Oh, wow. This is great. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so cool. So cool. Oh my God. Eric. Wow. Uh, is I, you know, we'll have to have you back if we can stay on the air. No, I'm just kidding. We'll be on the air. Um, <laughs> thank you so Anytime. much. Anytime. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming. Um, tell people where they can find you and how they can be a part of what you're doing. Um, I'm on Twitter at Eric Asimov, same as uh, same on Instagram. Uh, you can find me in the New York Times, just uh, at, new, at nytimes.com in the food section. Um, or if you buy the actual newspaper, my column is in, in it every Wednesday. Awesome. Well, oh my God. Thank you so much for being here, Eric. And uh, all you guys out there, until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, deep thinkers. We got a lot of that today. And of course, cheers to all you wine drinkers. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 